On this episode of The London Life Scene, we talk with Garrett Walden about his favorite man, the man, myth, and legend, John Collett Ryland. So we cover topics like who is Ryland? Why does he matter? What are his theological contributions? Why should both Baptists and non-Baptists care about Ryland and much, much more? And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or questions or ideas for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. And now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this was going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. But we don't want to just be serious. We also want to do it with particular uh, virtues that we find in the scriptures. So we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today, I'm delighted to introduce you all to someone who's been on the podcast before in a more roundtable format on the Hanover House, and who also is the book review editor for the London Lyceum, and that's Garrett Walden. So I'll let him give a little intro of who he is and wh- why he got interested in the topic we're talking about, which is John Ryland. John, I, do I have to pr- say his middle name? You probably is that like required? Yeah, you okay. So John Collett Ryland. I mean, is there a fun nickname that we give this dude, J Ryle or something? I don't know. I'm spitballing here. So we're going to talk to him about Ryland, and he's, I guess, an eminent Baptist and all sorts of things like that. I know almost nothing about him, so I'm looking forward to learning more about him. I know Garrett in the in actually a wildly popular episode that we did on Baptists and communion, talked a little bit about his view on communion, which intrigued me a lot. So I plan to ask him questions about that. So let's go ahead and get in the topic. But before we do that, Garrett, who are you? What are you doing? And why are you interested in thinking about this guy who's long dead? Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate that. So my name is Garrett Walden, and I am a pastor down in Auburn, Alabama at a church called Grace Heritage Church. Um, I've been here for about six uh, and a half years or so. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a sweet time, and it's a, a really sweet fellowship. And so I'm one of one of the pastors there, and I'm married. I've got uh, a wife and four kid four kids. Uh, Henry is six, Eleanor's four, Phoebe is two, and Louise is about six months old. And um, it's been it's been a spaced them out perfect, right? <laughs> it worked out all right, and we're we're grateful for all of these blessings the Lord's given. And um, so I'm also a, a doctoral student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm in this kind of interesting program. It's a modular PhD program that's uh, part systematic theology and part church history. So my main area of focus is um, 18th century Baptist history and theology. And so that kind of has led me to um, an interest in John Collett Ryland. So the way I got initially interested in John Ryland was uh, an early conversation I had with Dr. Michael Haken. He's my PhD advisor. And I was trying to get into the right frame of mind to think about Baptist studies at the doctoral level. And I just asked if he had a suggestion about Uh, kind of where to focus. And he just on the spot listed about a dozen names of people that basically there's nothing on them, but who are significant. And John Collett Ryland was the name that stood out to me. I I knew basically nothing about him either. 
And so I started just looking around and reading things that I could find and developed a real love for his his writing and the particular topics and the way that he presented things. And so it was kind of almost like a just a completely from the cold conversation with Dr. Haken that stimulated this interest in in Ryland. And so it is it is probably best to call him John Call it Ryland or John C. Ryland or John Ryland Sr. because his son, John Ryland Jr., is far more popular uh, because John Ryland Jr. was one of the close associates of Andrew Fuller and William Carey and that group that were uh, part of the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society. So uh, John Ryland Sr. was a generation prior. He did a ton of stuff we'll talk about, but uh, John Ryland Jr. is is probably the more is certainly the more well-known. Interesting. And, and before we start, Brandon, you were a patristics dude for a period of time. So what made you jump to Baptist? So that is, yeah. So I initially had a, a, a love for the early church fathers. And again, it was a, it was a conversation with Dr. Haken where I was talking about getting into patristics uh, scholarship and had done a lot of reading and had already tried to work my way into that area and something, I don't know that Dr. Haken was not trying to discourage me from patristics, but he was just talking about the need for uh, Baptist historians because there's so much uncharted territory. And we'll, we'll probably come back to that a little later, but um, you know, when you think about patristic scholarship uh, you know, the, the Orthodox, they study the, the, the patristic era, the Roman Catholics study the patristic era um, all branches of Protestantism focus on or can focus on patristics and, and Baptist as well. Uh, all of us look to that era and say, those are our fathers as well. But almost nobody, as such a small niche of people, will look at, you know, this 17th and 18th century Baptists and say, those are my people. And so those of us who are kind of in our stream, if we can, we probably should, because no one else is doing that work. Mm. Yep, that's a good word. So, um Let's start out with just a, a, a biographical sketch of, of Ryland. Now, was this the guy who 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 tried to talk uh, Carrie out of going? Is, is this the guy who said that that if God will save the heathen, he'll do it on his time or whatever? Or did that actually happen? Or, or did that not really happen? Or is am I thinking about the wrong guy? No, you, you've got the you've got the right guy. And so, what here's a, a, a quite interesting history of what I think is probably some misunderstanding with Ryland. If anybody knows the name of John Collett Ryland, and let's just be honest, almost nobody knows the name of John Collett Ryland. But if anybody does, it's probably only for this one little anecdote. Uh, And what happened was September 30th, 1785, uh, there are these pastors in the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. They get together for their regular kind of ministerial meeting in Northampton. And um, this elder pastor says to these two young guys, uh, why don't you propose a topic for us to talk about uh, in this kind of roundtable discussion? And this this young man pipes up and says, hey, what about, um, you know, this that complicated passage in 1 Peter? And this senior pastor says, no, you're, you're just trying to be an Arminian. Uh, it was, it was, he, he puts him down. And then this other guy, another young pastor says, what about the uh, the passage in the end of Matthew, where the church is called to take the gospel to all the nations? Uh, does that apply just to the apostles or to all the church through all the ages? And this 
senior leading elder statesman in the room says something to the effect of, sit down, young man, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your aid or mine. And that was John Collett Ryland. Now, what's so interesting about that uh, that story is that it does have kind of a peculiar uh, history of <laughs> its own interpretation. There are some competing claims about what was actually said and why. Um, and some people have interpreted that statement from uh, Ryland Sr. as an evidence of the hyper-Calvinism of the, of the time. And so the hyper-Calvinism of the time would have basically frozen the church from evangelistic activity, especially um, taking the gospel to other lands. And so hyper-Calvinism in that time probably would have been something kind of like a denial of the free offer of the gospel, uh, a denial of uh, duty faith, um, and other kinds of theological things that go with that, like understanding eternal justification, uh, those sorts of things. So um, Ryland is often presented as kind of the stereotypical guy for that. And look at how brave and courageous Carrie was for overcoming that opposition. I, I do believe that Ryland is deeply misunderstood on that topic. And we'll probably come back to that um, later on. But that's basically what his what his legacy has been. And that's one of the things in my particular research I'm trying to trying to fix. So give me give me more background on Ryland. Where where did he grow up? What did he do besides this famous inner exchange? Yeah. So John Collett Ryland was born and raised kind of in um, in the Northamptonshire area. He was born 1723, uh, died 1792, pretty much in England his whole life. He was married, uh, had five children. Uh, John Ryland Jr., the most famous. Uh, he had another son, Herman uh, Vitsius Ryland. Uh, so you can hear some of his theological uh, interests. Um, he had a child that died in infancy, uh, a daughter that married one of the, the future deacons of the church. So he had a great family. Uh, his grandson, Jonathan Edwards Ryland, um, went on to be influential as well. Um, he comes from a, a long line of Baptist uh, people from the area. So he was a, a pastor um, in three different areas uh, throughout his life, uh, really for about 42 years in three different churches. Uh, he was converted as a young man uh, under the preaching of a guy named Benjamin Bedom, um, and was he went to a kind of seminary, a Baptist academy at Bristol uh, under the leadership of Bernard Foskett, and received a really healthy evangelical Calvinistic Baptist education. Um, then he became the pastor at Warwick, was there for a while, was a pastor at Northampton for most of his ministry for about 25 years, and then kind of retired to the area of Enfield near London, was there for the last oh, six or so years of his life. Uh, early on, he was a, a friend of George Whitfield and Philip Doddridge and John Newton, in his later years uh, with the kind of the Baptist Missionary Society men, he died the year that the Baptist Missionary Society was formed. So um, so there, that institution kind of doesn't necessarily overlap with his life, but his influence is there. So what were some of his uh, key theological contributions? I know Jordan wants to ask about um, his stance on open communion. So we'll, maybe we'll, we'll 
table that one for now and, and jordan can ask the specific questions he has about that but pun intended <laughs> table that it one. was actually not intended but that oh, was pretty man. smooth so uh <laughs> yeah so so other than his stance on communion what are some other key contributions he's made to uh, baptist theology yeah so I, I do think one of the significant things about ryland is how he has been viewed as a hyper calvinist another term would be high calvinism of the area that would probably be a more proper term. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about his alleged hyper-Calvinism. And then, yeah, let's talk about the open communion debate. But the, I think the first thing that anyone needs to know about John Ryland, John Collett Ryland, is that he is a very eccentric person. And I use the word eccentric intentionally um, because that is the term that if you read anything about Ryland, this word comes up more than more than any other descriptor. And so it was kind of a, both a strength and a weakness for him. He was so interesting and he said some of the most outlandish things. It was almost kind of a, a, a like an internal volatility that could lead him to say some of the most hilarious things. There've been times reading John Ryland where I have seriously had to put my papers down and just, just laugh out loud. And then there's other times where it's like quite shocking and, inappropriate <laughs> and uh other times he's just so moving and i've been like led to tears is that why your wife trolls you so hard on twitter oh yes oh yes because <laughs> I, I get so worked up on on some of the some of the stuff with Rylan because I, I really feel like i understand the man uh at kind of a heart level and nobody else knows or cares and that that's kind of one of my purposes in researching and writing about him is i think he's misunderstood and nobody really appreciates him for kind of the extraordinary character that he is. Uh, and so, yeah, my wife, Kat, she she has a good time picking on me on, on Twitter as my personal Twitter troll. And uh, I don't mind. She's got a, a fun sense of humor about that. I love it. It's It cracks me up. Um, and it also cracks me up that you are so devoted and emotionally invested in, in Ryland. That's uh, if if I were as witty as her, I would come up with something funny here to say. So one of the interesting things about that is Kat will frequently pick on me because when we were when we got married, several of our friends had gotten married around the same time, and uh, my wife always loves to look at the groom when the wife when the bride is walking down the aisle and just watching the bro- the, the the groom uh, tear up. We've had some friends where the groom sobs like a baby. Uh, as his bride is walking down the aisle. And so when Kat and I were married, she comes into the, into the, uh, to the building and I do not shed a tear. Now I'm not much of a crier and Kat was quite offended after the fact that I didn't <laughs> cry at all. And I was like, Kat, I'm sorry. I was, I was genuinely excited and happy and, but just not like a kind of a crying kind of moment for me. And then when our children were born, I, I never shed a tear um, and of joy or anything like that. It's just I'm excited and happy, but she's always messed with me because I, I didn't cry at our wedding or at the birth of our children. And here I am. I have read one particular passage of Ryland probably a dozen times. Uh, it's the conclusion of his funeral sermon for Andrew Gifford. I don't think I have read it a single time without tears in my eyes. And I've tried to read it out loud a few times, and I can't get through it without choking up. And she... And that oh it, it kills oh, her. <laughs> I would roast you too for that. I'd sob like a baby at my wedding. I didn't. Yeah, cry this for all my makes kids, sense now, love- dude. But, you know, 
You deserve all these attacks. I do. I deserve it. Uh, she's a good sport. So he, so Ryland is an eccentric person. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so John Webster Morris in a biography of Andrew Fuller refers to Ryland senior as an excellent and eccentric man. Um, a guy named William Field later writes of Ryland uh, senior that he was possessed of considerable abilities um, but a strong and ardent imagination was not controlled by equal soundness or strength of judgment and a great degree of what is called eccentricity marked not only the manner of his public service but even his conduct in private life so he was just a very bizarre person he had these kinds of almost impulsive outbursts there's a, a famous story in the the autobiography of William J where um, he is with a friend in a private kind of meeting room and uh, someone brings up the American slave trade or the um, transatlantic slave trade. And there was this horrible story told of this woman who was abused by the slave captain. Uh, and it's, it's really quite graphic. I, I won't read it, but um, Ryland is, is in the room and hears this story relayed. And it says, it says here at the recital of this, Mr. Ryland seemed frantic and to lose his usual self-control. He was agitated and paced up and down the room. Oh, God, preserve me. Oh, God, preserve me. And then, unable to contain any longer, burst forth into a dreadful imprecation, which I dare not repeat. It shocked me, and I am far from justifying it, and yet, had the reader been present to witness the excitement and the struggle, he would hardly have been severe in condemning him. And so he goes on to kind of talk a little bit more about that. Um, Ryland happened to call William J. Uh, he gave him the just kind of the affectionate nickname Eusebius uh, for no reason, and William J. was unable to avoid the nickname. So he he was just a really just unique character. Uh, he, his uh, another one of his uh, great great grandchildren would talk about how just unusual he was and how really he was a man born out of time. He had kind of a Puritan intensity in a period of time where that was not highly valued. He was uh, super dramatic. You could imagine him being um, uh, just almost theatrical in his reactions to things. He had an interesting sense of humor, and he would say things just for the shock value. And that is actually, that's my conclusion about his interaction with William Carey at that minister's conference. I think when he said, sit down, young man, when God decides to save the heathens, he'll do it without your aid or mine. I think he was being sarcastic and ironic, and it was like a joke that didn't land. And I, so I really do think it was like a, an old man's bad joke that didn't land. He, so he was really that kind of personality. He was kind of volatile. He was never violent or, or uh, uh, anything like that. It was more of a just really quirky eccentricity. So... I think you need to know that about Ryland because when he says some of the things he says and about relating to hyper Calvinism, uh, you need to be able to situate it. So um, I do, I do think there is some evidence that he kind of leaned toward hyper Calvinism. Ultimately, I don't think he's a hyper Calvinist though. Uh, he was uh, early influenced by a guy named John Brine, who was a hyper Calvinist. I don't think anyone really debates that uh, about about Brine. John Gill was kind of his ministry hero and friend. Uh, there's a little debate about John Gill's reception of high Calvinism, but usually 
most scholars are, are, are affirmative that John Gill was a high Calvinist or a hyper Calvinist in that way. He was uh, also friends with John Skep uh, and Joseph Hussey. Those were two kind of early hyper-Calvinists. So he had some hyper-Calvinist associations. He also said some things at times that sounded like a hyper-Calvinist. So at one point, he comments about Andrew Fuller and Robert Hall. He says that they're kind of obsessed with this question about, should the gospel be offered to all people? And he, uh, John Ryland says, John Ryland Sr., he says, the devil threw out an empty barrel for them to roll about while they ought to have been drinking the wine of the kingdom. And that odd, that old dog laying in the dark has drawn off many good men to whip syllabub and to sift quiddities under the pretense of a zeal for truth. So in other words, he's saying that they're kind of obsessing over something that's not a huge deal. Um, he also, yeah, he, he, he wrote some things that sure do sound like a hyper-Calvinist. But then there's so many other things that he says and that he does that I think far outweigh the, the, the charge that he is a hyper-Calvinist. So um, he at one point says in a, in a sermon that we should avoid two extremes. He says, some high Calvinists neglect the unconverted, but Paul left no case untouched. He spoke properly and suitably to Felix as well as to Timothy. Some neglect to preach the law and to tell he- their hearers to accept Christ. Oh, sinners, beware. If Christ says depart, tis all over. Depart into a thousand etnas, bursting up forever and ever. Your souls are now within an inch of damnation. I am clear of your blood. If you are condemned, I'll look you in the face at judgment and say, Lord, I told that man, I told those boys and girls on the 29th of August, 1790, I warned them and they would not believe. And now they, shall, now they stand shivering before thy bar. So he has this passionate zeal for evangelistic preaching. Um, he was just like he was friends with John Gill and John Bryan. He was also uh, a friend and supporter of George Whitfield uh, in the revivals. He reprinted and republished the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he was a very successful village preacher. Someone at one point recorded that he took the the, the gospel to something like something like two hundred villages in the region. He and his son John Rowland Jr. Uh, in these kinds of occasional preaching. Um, also, you can just look at the, f- the fruit of his ministry. In his pastorate at Warwick, the church basically doubled in the time he was there, doubled in size. Um, in uh, his church at Northampton, the church was twice enlarged, the sanctuary. Uh, it, he had a highly successful ministry. And then I'll just read one more quote uh, to, I think, for me, this kind of seals the deal that John Collett Ryland was not a hyper-Calvinist. He says um, in his 1777 book, contemplations on the beauty of creation. He says, compassion for perishing souls should awaken our zeal. Oh, sirs, view the misery of a world full of fallen, sinful, miserable souls. Here is a whole world lost forever without a divine revelation. And these poor, foolish, mad sinners know not the guilt and misery of their condition. And the desperate hazards they run by neglecting and abusing their souls and exposing them to God's vengeance. They do not consider the danger they're in every moment. They do not consider that there is but a puff of breath between millions of souls and the eternal loss of their Bibles and the kingdom of God in a future world. The breath of our nostrils is reckoned to be the bond of union between the souls and bodies of all mankind, and how tremendous will be their misery if they go out of the world without a real interest in the promises of the gospel. Catch this. 
Let love to mankind then fire up our zeal to do everything in our power to save precious and immortal souls by this blessed and holy book of God. Oh, what a ravishing picture and honor it would be to diffuse the true knowledge of the Holy Scriptures through all the counties of England, through the whole British Empire, and if possible, through the whole world. O oh God, my Redeemer, let every nation that rolls at the foot of thy throne every 24 hours be blessed with thy gospel, washed in thy blood, and illuminated with the light of thy countenance. Let all the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee and enjoy thy presence forever. I'm telling you, that is not the same person that encountered William Carey at that minister's meeting. I think you gotta you gotta put him in this context, and it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that's that's preaching. <laughs> He's fired up over. I uh, think you're the first I, guest I, I we've had tell. that's ever said catch this too. So that's. Oh man, that was gold. Uh, you know, number one, you're a total nerd, so this is great. Uh, you really number are, two, man. your wife, your wife is going to roast you so hard. So yeah. I am so excited for when this releases to just watch the fireworks display. Um, number three, I don't think anybody can rival you and your passion besides maybe Jake Stone. So, uh, just get you two in a room and maybe tell you talk Baptist and get everybody fired up. (laughs) So I I did want to, you know, you talked hyper Calvinism and stuff and I I don't know for me that that's never really, that, that discussion just hasn't excited me. Maybe it has other people who are listening and I apologize on your behalf for not wanting to dive into that more. I find the open communion, the communion stuff interesting. So you said he has, uh, I don't know, what is it? A treatise or a tract or a pamphlet or something on open, defending open communion. Can you give me some of his arguments that are in that piece as to why he wants to, to have an open communion? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that was, that's one of the other significant features of, of Ryland seniors legacy is the open communion debate. So the reason the hyper-Calvinism thing is important is because of the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society. And so he he does he's part of that group. He's in the Northamptonshire Baptist Association, and that association is where that mission society was birthed. So the hyper-Calvinism piece is an important it is an important theological. <laughs> I think you've offended him by saying he just wasted the last ten minutes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not offended. I do I do think so there's kind of like for me those are kind of the two the two things about Ryland is kind of his role there but then in the in the communion debate uh there's the 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 communion debate goes back uh to kind of the middle of the 17th century the 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 kind of famous interlocutors were uh John Bunyan and William Kiffin and they kind of go back and forth and then the 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 conversation kind of dies out, and then it's revived again in kind of the the mid seventeen uh, hundreds, and then it kind of dies out, and then it's revived again. Uh, so it, it kind of ebbs and flows in particular Baptist history. And so John Collett Ryland writes an essay, and I've got it here in front of me. It's like fifteen pages. I can send you a PDF if you want to put it in the show notes uh, for people to see for themselves. Um, he wrote this essay called A Modest Plea for Free Communion uh, at the Lord's Table. He writes it, he writes it initially as a, a pseudonymous, pseudonymous, how do you say that word? He, he writes it under a false name um, as uh, Pacificus is the name. But then it gets pretty quickly snatched up by Daniel Turner, who kind of 
tweaks it a little bit, and then republishes it with just a very slightly different name. It's still called A Modest Plea for Free Communion at the Lord's Table, but it's got a different subtitle. And he he publishes it under the false name of Candidus. And so this came out in 1772. It's, it's kind of, I guess, now kind of regarded as a co-authored document uh, by John Collett Ryland and uh, Daniel Turner. And so... Uh, there's a, a recent article by a guy named Lon Graham that kind of shows, he kind of talks about the authorial history of, of the document. So some of the arguments though, uh, well, I guess to set up some of the, the, the broader categories, there are really uh, kind of two groups, the free communion people or open or mixed or Catholic. Those were kind of all interchangeable terms. So free, open, mixed, and Catholic were kind of one group of people that said um, any, anyone who's a, a true Christian can come to the Lord's Supper um, at, and should be able to come to the Lord's Supper at any church. And then um, there's also the strict or close or party communion uh, that should come to the Lord's Supper, or that, that basically reserves the right to restrict the Lord's Supper to usually to the members of the church. And then there were a couple of kind of intermediary positions, but those were the two main groups. So uh, in John Collett Ryland's essay, The Modest Plea, there's like, I think, maybe one copy of that that's, that exists, and I have not set my own eyes on it. It's in some archive in uh, in England somewhere. But the one that's put out by Daniel Turner basically is John Ryland's text, um, just with some some adjustments, and it's it's available online. You can Google it and uh, and find it. So a couple of his arguments, he basically says, I think kind of the fundamental principle of the open communion position is, is this the Lord's Supper or is it not? If it's the Lord's Supper, that means it's not our supper, and he gets to decide who comes to it or not. And if Jesus says paedo-baptists are Christians, then they have an inherent right to the privileges of the gospel. So basically, uh, the kind of the logic goes, if you're willing to affirm a paedo-baptist as a Christian, then you are saying that they have rights to the privileges of the gospel and the Lord's Supper is a duty that they must obey. And who are you to say that someone cannot come to the Lord's Supper if Jesus has, says they, has said they could? And I think that's a really, really strong argument. Now, here's... here's a great one. Yeah, I think it's, it's really a powerful <laughs> argument. I am not an open communion person. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more on the strict communion side. Guys like... Andrew Fuller, Abraham Booth. There were a, a handful of people that were kind of pushing back on this. So that's kind of the, the 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 anchor of their argument, though. This is the Lord's Supper, and because it's his and not ours, any any of his disciples should be able to come. Uh, Robert Robinson makes a similar argument uh, in his his later book too. He says we have no sufficient warrant to exclude them from any one of the privileges of of the gospel that grace has given them a right to partake of. Uh, he says, uh, we're guilty of invading the prerogative of Christ by making ourselves the judges. And uh, they also have this really strong and load-bearing category of private judgment. Uh, the, these people have the right to private judgment. Or we would say that's that would be liberty of conscience is the other kind of term for that. And... Uh, so they, they have a right to private judgment, and so we need to we need to respect that. Um, he says if we if we think they're sincere Christians, we need to grant them the right of private judgment. Um, so uh, another kind of way that he talks about that is 
he kind of, he, in, in the essay, he answers some objections. So here's, here's some of the objections from the strict communion people. Um, some would say, well, baptism is an initiating ordinance. And you cannot take the continuing ordinance of the Lord's Supper if you have not first uh, received the initiating ordinance of baptism. And since sprinkling an infant is not true baptism, then those people should not come to the Lord's Supper. And they, he gives he gives some, some answers to that objection. One of them is is kind of on the private judgment side, and it's kind of just who gets to decide what is and isn't baptism. Uh, and he, he he's kind of guarding against uh, a kind of hierarchy of authoritative interpretation. So he says, you know, we don't we don't want to be uh, more restrictive than Scripture is. He even says at one point that. Um, if scripture were so clear about baptism, then wh- why is there so much disagreement? Clearly, God intended for there to be some some latitude here for, for private judgment. Um, another objection was if we become lax on this requirement for baptism, we're going to just open the door to all kinds of indiscretions and indifference to doctrine. If we don't plant our feet here, and like really dig our heels in to defend this point, this is a kind of slippery slope argument of like, what else might we be willing to compromise on? And so um, so he, he kind of addresses that objection. Um, he says um, sometimes there's objections against the, the personal character of paedo-baptist people. Uh, and is like, you know, if these are such terrible, wicked people. Why would we want them to come to the Lord's Supper with us? And so then he, he, answers, he answers some of, some of those uh, objections there as well. Uh, and so he kind of just goes down through the list. I think he makes a really strong case um, for open communion. He answers some relevant objections. I think this particular document comes into a more mature form in Robert Robinson's book, or his little, I guess it is kind of a book, a booklet um, of... Uh, the general doctrine of toleration. So uh, you, you've already kind of touched on this about, you know, no, if nobody else studies Baptist, you know, then if we don't do it, you know, n- no, no one's going to do it because the, the Presbyterians and the Roman Catholics are certainly not, you know, spending their time studying Baptist history. So, um, but do you have any other thoughts on why Baptist churches and, and Baptist individuals today should care so much about these older theologians? Oh, I've got so many thoughts, Brandon. Um, <laughs> so, a- asking you if you have thoughts is a stupid question. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, so many thoughts. So, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it brief. If if Baptists don't write our own history, nobody will. Again, so, some of, some of some of these thoughts have been, I think, stimulated a lot by by Doctor Haken. Uh, if Baptists don't write our own history, and if we don't rearticulate our own theology, then nobody will. Uh, or Somebody will, and they'll do it badly, and we don't want that either. And so there, there's just so much uncharted territory in Baptist studies. Uh, there's so many stones that not only have not been turned, but most people don't even know that they're even out there. And so that's kind of what why I'm passionate about Ryland is um, I have discovered a, a wealth of spiritual and devotional and intellectual stimulation in reading John Collett Ryland. And so I, I would not have even known that what I was missing had I not been suggested it. And so a, a couple of other things though, uh, if, if you're a Baptist, 
then we need to recover our own theology. Uh, we see, a, I think, a, a pretty significant declension in Baptist piety and Baptist theology in our country today. And so um, I, I'm encouraged, though, through groups like this and, uh, and, and others, there's kind of this recovery of confessional theology. Um, hap- it's mainly kind of in our circles, but we see this recovery of Baptist theology, but we haven't always seen the recovery of Baptist history. And I think there, there, can, there can be a problem with that. If we don't recover the history along with the theology, I think we're going to be open to a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of people saying they're recovering confessional theology when in fact they're not. A good example of that was in the podcast you did with Tom Hicks, where he was talking about theonomy and he was talking about the general equity of the civil laws. I have heard people talk about that and say the general equity is basically just like the main idea, like the kernel of the kernel of, you know, truth or whatever. But Tom gave a much more historically nuanced interpretation of what it means to recover the general equity. And if I remember correctly, he was making the case that the general equity of these civil laws was places where the moral law was like clearly discernible within that civil law. And so um, I think that's a really important historical piece to recover so that you can ad- adequately retrieve the confessions theology. So um, I, I, have a heart, I have a real heart for that. Uh, another kind of case for this is um, there, were, there were lines of historical development and interpersonal relationships that, uh, that, are, that are worth noting. Our theology doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes, it's been handed down to us, and we, we need to kind of trace that lineage back. It comes through some kind of really difficult conflict and, and breakups at times. Um, definitions of terms evolve, and so we need to have this historical retrieval. And, you, you know, you can read into figures like John Owen and John Bunyan and John Gill and John Ryland, anything that you want to find there if you're not historically sensitive and so really, I think what's going on with my passion for Baptist history is that it's really an extension of Jesus's command to love thy neighbor. And that's really what's going on uh, in historical studies like this is we have contemporary neighbors who are separated from us by space, but we also have neighbors who are separated from us by time. And that's who these people are. Uh, we need to love them and give attention to them by seeking to investigate this history uh, with integrity and with precision, uh, and really understand what they're saying. And if we don't do it, it's going to be—it's it's, it's going to be lost. The, the further we go, the the more lost it's going to be. So when we want to think zero in from, hey, we want to retrieve all the historical stuff of Baptist life. What does Ryland in particular have to teach the church today? What is it you would say? These are the things that you would most benefit from retrieving from him? So th- there's, a, there's a few things. I think the main thing is the importance of humility. Uh, Rowland was a big deal in his day. John Collett Rowland. He came from a great family of Baptist people. He had great children who were involved in church life. He was writing, the- he wrote, I'm, I'm, I don't exaggerate, thousands of pages that were published, not to mention unpublished things. Uh, thousands of pages. He was a big deal in his day. He, he led very successful schools for children. Uh, he led very influential churches. He was a big deal, and he was well-known. 
But within a generation or two, nobody was talking about him. Not not a single person. Not a single person has been reading his thousands of pages for you know well over two hundred years, two hundred fifty years. Um, he has a, a five hundred page book on Christology published in seventeen eighty two. Not a single person has looked at it since then. It's wow. the whole the whole document has been scanned in by the British Museum, and you can find a, a PDF of it for free on on Google. Really. Yeah. And again, it's it's significant, significant stuff. The first like quarter of the book is talking about all the places where the second person of the Godhead is is disclosed in the Old Testament. And it's fascinating. I have not read anything like it in my entire life. It's fascinating. So the 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 point the point though of humility is that we're standing in his tradition and we've never even heard his name. And I think for me it's just been a very humbling thing to see a man devote his entire life to deep theological work and to the church and not a soul knows his name. And that's okay. So, I, you know, it just reminds me of this passage in Acts 13, 36. It says, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell to sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. And for me, the lesson from Ryland is, are you okay with that? Uh, not just okay with it. Are, are, are you aiming higher than that? And if you are, you may be falling short of God's purpose. John Collett Ryland served God in his generation, and then he fell asleep. And so for me, it's just, it's been a real, it's been truly an honor and a privilege to, to retrieve some of his work. Now, one thing I think you might be getting at, I, I have not discovered some specific thing that he gave insight into that no one else had ever talked about before. So I don't think he's he's really very innovative. Even it, one of his uh, chil- his great grandson, great great grandson, said that basically in in reading his um, ancestors' works, there was nothing original. Um, he was he was reproducing ideas in his own way of, of John Owen and uh, Jonathan Edwards and uh, Herman Vitzius and so many of those other guys. And so he was he was rigidly orthodox. He was zealous and energetic, um, and but he wasn't necessarily innovative. So maybe yeah. one other thing that we can learn from Ryland is the value of the life of the mind. Um, so Ryland was out there republishing scientific works. He probably republished he, – he probably published more than 100 different works, he, which, which would include the scientific works of Isaac Newton, uh, different kinds of study materials for geography, like flashcards and things like that, uh, Greek and a Hebrew grammar, uh, a bunch of different historical writings. He wrote this introduction to the life of, of Alfred the Great, uh, republishing Edward's sermons. He translates some John, uh, John Owen from Latin into English for the first time. Um, he's doing all of this as a bivocational pastor, as a school teacher for what we would consider middle school and high school boys. He, he devoted himself to uh, to the life of the mind, and it bore great fruit in his ministry. So I've got one last quick question. Uh, we have a, a, a Baptist nerd on here, so I can't let this opportunity pass us by. So, And I, I don't want you to think about it. Just off the top of your head, the your top three Baptist books. These are the three books that you need to read if you want to learn more. It could be Baptist history, Baptist theology, ecclesiology, whatever it is, top three Baptist books. Go. Okay, so... The first one that I think is so significant is uh, James Renahan's Edification and Beauty, uh, published by Pater Noster. Um, 
Edification of Beauty, James Renahan, number one. Uh, that's been so, so helpful to me. Um, if you're kind of just getting your feet wet in Baptist studies, you should read Dr. Haken's book, uh, Kiffin Knowles Keach, uh, published through H&E Publishing. Uh, that would be a great uh, doorway into some early Baptist studies. And a third, I'm going to, this is going to be terrible. I've not read the book, but I'm going to recommend it anyway. Uh, Matthew Bingham, Orthodox Radicals. It's on my list of books to buy when I'm rich. Um, and so uh, that, that's, that's my strategy. And I, in the meantime, I'm just, I'm just kind of rereading Jordan's review of it over and over again. But I think oh my gosh. from what I've understood, that is kind of some groundbreaking scholarship that I hope to, to be able to dig into uh, in, the, in the near future. Great I mean, I'll, I'll I'll cover your sin and say yes. I recommend the book. I think it's fabulous. Uh, Brandon, have you read it? I can't remember. I have. Yep, I've read it. Okay. It's really good. So I love it. Uh, Baptistic congregationalism all the way. You know, I particular Baptist lame <laughs> title. Give me Reformed Baptist or Baptistic congregationalist. That's my. I'm planting my flag. <laughs> anyway, uh, Garrett, this has been a lot of fun. So. Remind me, is that for people who want to follow along? You've got a Twitter. Is there anywhere else they can find you to say, "Hey, I want to see the next paper or something that Garrett's working on"? Yeah, appreciate you asking. So, if you're interested in John Collett Ryland, and I'm sure all of you are by now, um, <laughs> reach out to me, and I will send you stuff and point you in the right direction. Uh, I would love to encourage you to, to dig in. Uh, you can you can f- find me on Twitter. Um, and you can find my Twitter information at the London Lyceum's website. Um, and I'd be, I'd be happy to, to reach out. And my email address is just my Twitter handle at gmail.com. You can send me a direct message on Twitter or send me an email. That's probably the best way to reach me. And let me also just say, um, I am not an expert at this, at this point. I'm, I'm in a PhD program trying to become a, an historian. And, uh, that, that's my aspiration. And so I've got, I've got numerous kind of things in the pipeline of, of research interest within this kind of area. But I don't have just like a ton of stuff that's like already just like, you know, overflowing. I've got a million ideas and hopefully time to develop them. So feel free to reach out to me with, with questions or, 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 or comments. I'm happy to interact. That's great. Brandon, do you have a final roast for Garrett before we close up? No, I don't. I'm just going to leave it there. I, I Just go follow Garrett's wife on Twitter and you'll get all the roasting you need. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, Garrett, thanks. And I know our listeners enjoyed this. So for you guys who are listening right now, uh, you can go follow Garrett. You can check out his stuff. And as new things come out, you know, I'll try to make sure to link to it so you have uh, copies of it and everything. But, Garrett, thank you. I think you uh, have been one of the most passionate guests we've had, which I think is a good thing. So it's... You know, it, it's when people aren't passionate about what they're talking about, I gotta like wonder, like, what's going on? Like, why is it that you even devoted your life to studying this if you're not passionate about it? So I think that's cool, and I'm, I'm glad that you are. And we need more people who want to retrieve Baptist thought because, as you said, if, if we don't do it, no one else will. So, anyway, those who've been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.